Good morning. Um, so today we're continuing our service through Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark's Gospel, as you're probably aware, is fairly fast-paced. He's very fond of the phrase, and then, and then, and then, and then. And he tends to kind of skip over some fairly profound concepts. Um, so when I looked at this text that we're looking at this morning, initially I thought, oh yeah, that shouldn't be too hard. Um, eight hours later, I was still struggling with, what do I put in here, what do I leave out? So I've left out some stuff you think are important, I apologise. Uh, we have limited time. So if you'd turn with me to Mark chapter 1, we're reading from verse 14. Now last week Gav covered the first few verses of Mark's Gospel, and um, if you missed that I'd recommend you catch up with that online. It was an awesome sermon, and we don't have time to rehash all of that again. So reading from Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. He went a little further and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in a boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. So this is just after Jesus was baptised. He'd been in the wilderness for 40 days. He'd been tested. And then he comes from that, and he goes straight into Galilee. Now Galilee is not a sleepy little lakeside backwater that I used to think it was. Galilee was actually on the main international trading route that went through Israel. Wars had been fought there. People had been um, passing through that area for centuries. So Jesus' choice of ministry area was possibly strategic. He knew that people would be passing by, would hear his message, and would take it beyond the borders of Israel. It was also near his hometown, but that may have been the minor aside. It was a very busy place with Romans and Greeks and other nationalities passing through there regularly. So he goes to Galilee and he starts proclaiming the good news of God. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, one of Mark's cool little suitcases of, of content, the phrase, the good news of God. The case it's written in in the Greek is the genitive case, which could mean that it is the good news about God. It could also mean it's the good news which belongs to God. Or, as is probably the case, it means both. It is the good news from God about himself. This is God's good news to us. It's not a human attempt to try and understand God from our limited point of view. It's not someone trying to explain God. It is actually God revealing himself to us. So Mark's actually saying, Jesus' ministry in its entirety is God's revelation to us. 
Jesus' ministry is a proclamation of the good news of God. Not just, you know, this brief sentence that he's talking about. His entire life, his entire ministry, his death, his resurrection. All of that is God's proclamation of the good news. And Jesus says the time has come. Now he's not talking about, oh, 20 past 10, it's time to wrap this thing up. He's talking about the season, the event, the time that was foretold. Jesus is talking about after all the centuries of prophecy, after all the centuries of waiting, after all the years of, of preparation, the time has come. Now is the season. Everything pointed to this moment in history. Everything was ready. Now the kingdom of God has come near. Now the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. It's not a place on a map bounded by political borders. And the Jews would have understood this concept. See, the, the Greek word basileus was a translation of the Aramaic idea of kingship. It was about the right to rule. It was about the right to have authority. It's about royal power, about dominion. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a place. We're talking about God's right to rule and his rule in our life, his sovereignty over our life. Now the Jews had always kind of known about that. They knew that God was king of Israel. The Old Testament, I seem to have my slides out of order here, he was the king over Israel. The Old Testament is full of texts which point to God's kingship over Israel. Here's an example of a few. They also knew that he was king over the world, not just Israel. He was king of the nation. And there would be a time, some point in the future, where that would be revealed to the world, much to their shock and consternation. And so they had this idea of a present reality of God's kingdom and they had this understanding that eventually in the future it would be revealed. There was this present reality and a future hope which is similar to our understanding of the kingdom of God. And so Mark is declaring here that the seeds planted in the Old Testament, the prophecies, the promises, the plan would become visible in the ministry and life of Jesus. The time has come. God is reaching out to us. Repent and believe. God's plan for redemption is about to be made plain. Paul talks about this a bit more in Ephesians chapter 3 where he talks about the great mystery that was planned before time began was revealed in Christ. All this is about to happen. And all that was going to be required of people would, that, would be that they repent and they believe. Now repentance is literally a change of direction, a change of mind. It means that we have to change where our mind is focused, what our priorities are, what do we consider important, what is our purpose in life? It means thinking about how we live and why we live. 
Repentance means changing your priorities from the things of this world and looking to the things of the kingdom of God. It means submitting your life to God's rule. The other requirement was belief. Now, in this context, belief is more than just the agreement with an idea. For example, I believe that the world is roughly spherical and it travels in space around a big star we call the sun. I believe that. It's a fact that is part of my worldview. But it has very little impact on the way I live my life. I know it affects the seasons. I know that after a few hours today it's going to get dark and tomorrow the sun will appear to come up again in the east. But that's about all the impact it has on my life. If we truly repent, if we truly believe, it will make a change to the way we live. I heard a story a while ago. A guy's walking along a cliff. He trips, he stumbles, he falls over the cliff. And as he's falling, he grabs a branch that's growing out of the side of the cliff. And he's hanging there and he's calling out, Hey, somebody help me, somebody help me. And then he hears a voice. Hey, it's God. I'm here to help. God, help me, I'm hanging onto this branch. God says, let go of the branch. The guy goes, hey, is there anybody else up there? Belief requires action. You can't say you believe in God, but have no impact on the way you live. If you believe, you will obey. It's a natural step. So Mark is pointing out that members of the kingdom of God have to be changed have to become more like Christ. And if we do a quick scan through Mark's Gospel, and there's evidence of this in all the Gospels, in fact, all the Bible, Mark points to things like childlike humility. He talks about becoming like a child to enter the kingdom of God, which is about trust. It's about obedience. It's about humility. As you know, children obey their parents. They believe their parents. I remember some of the things that my dad told me as a kid, and I believed it because dad said it. That's how we are expected to respond to God as believers in the new kingdom. He talks about sacrificial service. He talks about the first being last or the first being the servant of all. He says, truly I tell you, one does not, if one does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he'll never enter. He talks about concern for the poor. As you know, the story about the rich man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus looked at the man and he knew the man's heart and he said, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Now there's nothing wrong with wealth per se. It's the love of money. It's when money is your priority over and above the kingdom that there's a problem. If you have wealth, so be it. The Lord gave it to you to help the poor, to help others less fortunate than yourself. And there's prioritizing the needs of others over your own. And finally, and probably most importantly, Mark points out that the love of God and the love of your neighbor is an essential kingdom value. 
when he was asked about the greatest commandment. Love God with everything you have and with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the changes that will happen as we submit our lives to God and become under his kingship. We change as we become disciples. We change as we follow. And so we see here Jesus walking along the lakeshore and he sees a bunch of ordinary blokes going about their jobs. They're just ordinary people like you and me, just doing their thing, mending nets, fishing. In John's Gospel, Simon, um, who becomes Peter, and Andrew have actually met Jesus before. They probably knew who he was anyway because, you know, word gets around. But when he says, follow me, they got up immediately, stopped what they were doing right now and followed. And these were just ordinary blokes. They're probably what we would call middle class nowadays. They weren't super rich. They weren't poor. They had an income. They had a job. Um, they had hired help. But they were doing okay. And they walked away from that. Now, Acts 4, uh, when Peter was in front of the Sanhedrin, um, they judged him as uneducated. And that probably doesn't mean he was illiterate. It probably means he didn't have a formal theological education. And when you think about these people and you read the stories through the Gospels, they didn't really seem to understand who Jesus was. They knew he was a disciple, uh, sorry, a teacher. They knew they were his disciple. But it wasn't until Mark chapter 8 at Caesarea Philippi where Peter actually blurts out, when Jesus says, who do you think I am? It's there, eight chapters later, halfway through Jesus' ministry, Peter says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And it took that long to get to that point. And we see after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, they're still a little unsure what's going on. Jesus didn't call them because they knew everything. Jesus didn't call them because they were educated and had theological degrees. He called them because of one characteristic. They were faithful. They got up, they left everything and followed him. Jesus knew they would make mistakes. Jesus knew they had a lot to learn. He knew they had a long way to go. There were probably many other more suitable people in Israel at the time that Jesus could have chosen. And later in life he chose Paul who was a trained he had the theological degree. He chose Luke, who was probably a doctor. But at this point in his ministry, he chose ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He didn't choose religious leaders. He didn't choose rock stars. He didn't choose financial advisors or rich and powerful people. He chose fishermen, average people, people like us. And he chose them to follow him. Now this isn't a, a YouTube or a Facebook follow where you're scrolling through, you click like, you click follow and then you scroll on to the next thing. Um, and occasionally you'll get a notification when Jesus of Nazareth posted something on Twitter. No, this literally means to walk the same path, to do life with your rabbi. 
who become like them. These four men were going about their lives, doing their thing, and they dropped it. They dropped it to live a new life, to walk the path of Jesus. They left their families. They left their work. They left their homes to go, as Jesus says later, to sleep wherever because foxes have homes, birds have nests. But the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. They took that on. God, no, Jesus chose ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Jesus chose them to, to walk his path, to become like him. They weren't, when Jesus called them, the people they would become. They had a lot to learn. They had a lot of growing to do, just like we do. Jesus started with what they knew, and he built on that. He started, in fact, by using a fishing analogy. I will make you fishers of people. And that should be our model for discipleship as well. We should be accepting people where they are at. If their heart is pointed towards Christ, they can start that journey from where they are at. And more importantly, we should go to where the people were at. Jesus didn't wait in the temple for disciples to come to him. He went to Galilee. He went to their workplaces. He walked along the beach to find them. But how often do we write people off because they don't meet our expectations? They don't look like we think they should. Jesus looked at their attitude. He looked at their willingness to follow, their willingness to learn. He looked to see which heart, way their heart was facing. Was it facing towards God or towards themselves? What do we look for in people we deceive? Jesus called ordinary people to do extraordinary. And these men got up, got up, stopped what they were doing, and followed. And it cost them a great deal. Discipleship has a cost. The text we're looking at today started with, now after John was arrested, nice, casual, throwaway comment, John's life is over. His ministry is pretty much done. He's in jail. We know a few chapters later he's beheaded. Half a sentence, throwaway line. Should warn us, there is a cost to following Christ. And Jesus uses a fishing analogy. Fishing was hard back then. It wasn't wrote a motor your boat out to your fishing spot, bait up a line, throw it over the side, open the esky, sit down and wait for a fish to bite. These nets were fairly big. They had weighted edges and you had to throw them out. You had to throw them out so they spread. And then you had to pull them in. And they were heavy. And when you pulled them in and all you had was an old boot, you had to do it again. And if you caught a bunch of fish, they're heavy too, and you have to pull them in as well. And then you have to empty them out in your boat and throw the net out again and do it again. And there were times we know that you could fish all night and catch nothing. In fact, Luke's account of the story, Jesus tells the disciples who go out and cast their nets, and they say to him, Lord, we've been fishing all night and we caught nothing. It happens. It's hard work. It needs persistence. It needs patience. 
it needs dedication, and primarily it needs faithfulness. It means making mistakes. It means making mistakes and asking for forgiveness. It means accepting forgiveness and trying again. It means giving forgiveness when we are. And then, if we follow the example set by Simon and Andrew and James and John, we will become disciples who make disciples. Now, we're not all called to be evangelists, as they were, but we are called to be disciples who make disciples. We are called to grow the family. We are ordinary people called to do extraordinary things. The kingdom of God is among us, but it is not fully here. Our job is to advance it, to push back the boundaries. And we each have a part to play in that. Like I said, we aren't all called to be evangelists, but Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are part of a body, and a body has many members. Some are called to preach. Some are called to go to faraway places, taking the gospel with them. Others are called to stay home and pray, stay home and give. Others are called to paid employment in the church. Others are called to volunteer on the bus ministry or the children's ministry or the youth ministry. Other people are called to work quietly without recognition in the office during the week where no one sees what they do. We are all called to something. We are all called to be part of that body, part of God's kingdom. We are all called to be disciples. We are called to repent and to believe. We are called to make the kingdom of God the first priority in our life. We are called to be transformed as we believe and follow Christ. And we are all individually and as a body, called to demonstrate the reality of Christ's kingdom here in Alice Springs and around the world. As we took communion this morning, Ian talked about the fact that in taking communion, we are recognizing our part in the body. That body is bigger than us here in Alice Baptist. It's bigger than the Christian community in Alice Springs. The community extends right across the world. I remember one time when we were up in Yurikala, we went to church on Ski Beach. We sat on the sand and we talked about God. And then we went home and um, contacted our church in New Zealand. And they had us hooked up through a, a phone contact and we could hear the church singing. Songs like we sang this morning. And the contrast between church on the beach and church at Northwest Baptist in Auckland was huge. But we are all believers. We are called to be part of that body. And communion acknowledges that. When we eat the bread, we are acknowledging that we are part of a body, part of God's kingdom. But it also reminds us the job is not yet done. We look forward to the return of Christ. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. The kingdom of God is not yet fully realized and won't be until the Lord returns. We are a bunch of ordinary people called to do extraordinary things. 
We are called to be disciples who make disciples. Not just the ones we like, not just the ones who are convenient. We are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are called to teach them to obey everything that Christ commanded us. We are a bunch of ordinary people commissioned to change the world. Lord God, the world out there is a very big place. The world out there does not want to acknowledge you and actively resists your message. But Lord, you have chosen us to be your representative, to demonstrate your kingdom, to live in your kingdom, in a world around you that hates you, a world around us that hates you. And so Lord, I pray that as we go out, as we continue to live, that you will continue to transform our lives through your Holy Spirit. That you will continue to change us into your image so that when people see us living our lives, they can see the reality of your good news in our lives. And the way we, the way we live, our attitudes, the way we treat each other. Lord, we just commit ourselves to you again, the furtherance of your kingdom. 